Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell, and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. With that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of November 21st, 2022. So Mike, one of the articles I wanted to jump into, and it's kind of interesting because it's, it's not so much hunting strategies but it's something i think every security person kind of has to deal with wherever you sit and it's Mm -hmm. having the right data to talk to management leadership and things to promote what it is you you need for capabilities what do you need for operational success justify your program training initiatives those types of things and it's an article from humanize um security and it's the 144 cybersecurity statistics for 2022 so they added a really good breakout and they broke it out in category and I'll quickly read through the categories just so people are aware of kind of how they group things together. But they had statistics for this, the C-suite, they had stuff on insurance, the workforce, human error, data breaches, DDoS statistics, social engineering, phishing, um, zero trust, the kind of the bigger attacks that happened in 2022, some stuff on ransomware and then kind of predictions and then like an other category, but predictions for, you know, what, what to come. And so I really like these because they they did a good job kind of sourcing their their content um, mm-hmm. of like where they kind of collected these and kind of what they matter. But I, I'm just going to read off a couple that I thought were interesting to me. Um, and so there's like five or six I have listed. And, and so there's one on the insurance side, sure. right? And it's the yep. uh, cyber insurance premiums increased by 28% in the first quarter of 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yep. that's it's interesting to me because people I feel like in the past few years have been buying more into the cyber insurance because the inevitability of being attacked and there's impact and they want to cover those costs. But because cyber attacks aren't going away or becoming less or static, they're still increasing on, on you know, from a capacity, insurance is just costing more and more. So at some right. point, I wonder if they're going to reach a point where insurance it already doesn't cover the full cost of if you get hit, but if it costs so much out of pocket up front, then is it better to have insurance or better to invest more in security programs? It's kind of where my head goes with that one. Yeah, uh, I believe, and I'll have to fact check, um, but I believe cybersecurity insurance is is somewhat um, required uh, for some businesses, depending on kind of like a regulation um, thing the size I, I believe i believe there was a, it's definitely a compliance thing right so we're okay. you know seeing how to go through like SOC 2 audits if you have a SaaS product mm-hmm. if you're doing any type of b2b business i believe you need cyber cyber insurance right so there's already um going to be an increase in premiums as more organizations have to align to those policies that makes sense um but uh, the other point in this section is that 42% of companies did not actually have all their losses covered by insurance. And so we've right. talked about cyber insurance a couple of times on this podcast already, but for organizations at the start, it, it, it helps them absolve a lot of their risk, right? So mm-hmm. 
with some of the other numbers we'll probably talk about in this article with the rise in ransomware with the rise in um, a lot of these exploits and these companies getting attacked it allows them to kind of offset the cybersecurity costs with the fact that look if we are get attacked if we have an edr system in place and it still bypasses that we've we've you know checked all the boxes we might be able to make back that that loss where it won't affect the bottom line of the business as much right and, and yeah. we've seen in the news cycle typically there's about a two weeks news cycle right target hack out of the news in two weeks right uh they're still doing very well right you have all these organizations that potentially get attacked it's in the news wave or news sphere it goes away after a couple of weeks and their business gets you know right back to normal um, right but what it allows them to do is offset that that operational cost to recover and then get back to business so um i, I don't know if they need to up up the policy for cyber insurance if they need to up the requirements but it seems like we're we're kind of we're giving a lot of these organizations a parachute um rather than you know I, I don't know the you're probably better at this analogy than i am but like we still need to teach them how to operate the parachute right um and understand how you know how to protect themselves yeah and you know it comes back to i mean insurance premiums are going up but i know one of the the nice requirements of getting insurance is they kind of do their own audit of your security program and infrastructure as it is too right and so that kind of is like the double tap on hey we at least know these people are doing the right thing that's why we will insure them right um having seen what those audits look like um it, it could be more in depth i'll just put it that way it's not super okay it's more like the checklist yeah, and conversation yep 100 it's not having a firm come in and audit your infrastructure and an auditor actually sit down and look at your environment and that might be different for the larger organizations mm -hmm. but from what i've seen it's a it's a checklist and a conversation so okay um yeah that needs to get better yeah so then the the other other uh stat that i thought was really interesting only because i have like a personal story tied to it right was it was under the human error and it said only 53 percent of employees can correctly define phishing and <laughs> that kind of took me by surprise because it's like phishing is such a common thing in our world and it's most common training that's delivered within organizations. And so I, I kind of thought about it and I remember when I was trying to work through an incident and was explaining things up to like upper management, right? At, a, at the manager director level. And there was a director that was in the IT realm and the phishing specific um, attack had an attachment, right? Malicious attachment. and it was because of the training I'm assuming that was being offered, but they're like, well, that can't be phishing. It didn't have a link in it. And it was like, <laughs> well, wait a second. Like we really are missing the boat here. If, if we think that, cause like think how, if that's your thought process and you get in something sent and it's an attachment, you're not worried immediately. Right. All of a sudden that becomes an okay thing, but you're really good about the links. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's when I was like, maybe that's kind of true as far as, you know, when you say correctly defined, like what that really means as far as phishing, not like, oh, it's social engineering, it's how people get you with email, sure. but like, what are the different ways phishing emails can look and what they are and, and, and their effectiveness and things like that. So, that yeah, was an interesting that's, to me. that's, that's scary. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what's interesting about this article is that a lot of the stats are coming from specific companies. So mm -hmm. it looks like they've aggregated. So where Proofpoint called out the article that you just talked about, Cisco's next talking about 86% of people at least click the phishing link. I'm guessing they're getting information from their current customer set, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, 
it, I believe higher up in this article, um, 96% of companies have been a target of email related phishing attempts. All right. And to your point, um, and they even label this as cybersecurity statistics for the C-suite, where are you gonna focus your uh, your security efforts? All right, like knowing the statistics, knowing what your area of, of infiltration is in your, your environment, like seeing these stats, you should be able to say, look, we need to focus on phishing as a response. Like the, our defenses should be at the email level to start and then work our way down if that's your, you know, your area of influence there. But um, this is, this should be highly valuable. And again, to your point, you need to be able to drill this home, not only to the C-level, but to the board um, and to the rest of the employees to, you know, really drill this home. Look, every organization is under attack, not to be alarmist, but if you have yeah. data, if you have product, if you have something that somebody wants or can be ransom, like you're, you're a target now right and, and so you, know, need, you need to be fully aware of that when you make you know the comment everyone could be a target one of the things i liked was in the ransomware section you know they called out 14 of the u.s critical sectors have been subject to an intense ransomware attack and i'm like well how many critical sectors are there i'm like well there's 16 <laughs> right so like right, there's like two right. sectors that either haven't been affected by this for some reason or just hasn't been reported for you know for whatever reason and I was like, I mean, that's almost 100%, right? Critical infrastructure just targeted, right? Within the vertical, right? Not every company, but in those verticals. So mm -hmm. it just kind of lets you, lets you, you know, there's some people who think, well, why would someone care about me? Well, unfortunately, that's just not how the attackers necessarily think, right? So. Yeah. And I, I think, I think with Microsoft getting into the security space more heavily, um, because uh, I think there was an article last week talking about a, a couple of schools closing because they're ransomware attacks, right? And I, I think as more organizations in these sectors adopt kind of a standard, because no telling what that school had from an infrastructure perspective, but with the big, like Microsoft and Google's getting into security where you're already leveraging those that infrastructure for email, uh, maybe cloud, uh, maybe some of the services, it helps you kind of have security and depth layer where right. although you are kind of, utilizing that one entity and if the entity has a vulnerability or an exploit you know you probably have that same uh you know uh, ability to get attacked but that bigger entity like microsoft's going to be able to solve that problem quicker and respond and react and they have all the data to see it so i'm curious to see how that shifts because we went from the bigs having security and then we started to see a lot of smaller organizations and startups starting to do individual pieces of cybersecurity like zero trust yeah. and email protection and now we're seeing that kind of roll back up into the bigs being that kind of one-stop shop to cover off that whole landscape so yeah so you know i'll just leave the lasting remark on this one we can move on is i just kind of behoove people to just take put some eyes on this right it's they're just good to, to know and kind of have in your back pocket and like i said everyone's been forced to at some point talk to leadership now, leadership doesn't understand a lot of the technical stuff we try to throw at them of why we care, but they can understand this stuff and it's laid out that way. So, you know, it's a good way to kind of at least start the conversation. So, yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So, moving on, we got a bleeping computer article talking about um, the United States charging <clears throat> business email compromise suspects with targeting federal healthcare programs. So, again, talking about um, you know, phishing or email compromise, 
this method is being used across the board. And so these group of individuals ended up stealing like $11 million by tricking people to redirect bank transfers um, specific to Medicare, Medicaid, medical services. Um, and were able to kind of, uh, I guess, infiltrate from a business email compromise, right? So spoof, hey, you know, send us this money to this other account, verify this bank transfer, so on and so forth. So there's a couple of things out of this. We're talking about phishing again. Um, the email compromise mm -hmm. side, but there's also really just about education with in process about, you know, if somebody sends you an email about a wire transfer, there should be levels of uh, communication and verification before that even happens. Um, and it seems like they were able to bypass that, that policy potentially, um, or the, mm -hmm. the people actually executing those weren't, um, weren't educated to kind of see this and understand um, this process. And there was a personal story a couple of years ago, this happened to somebody and they lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a wire transfer um, because this person believed the email that went through um, and did not do any other verification. Um, and in this, I think they actually had access to the exchange service. So they were actually mimic the emails going back and forth, but they got access to the exchange server via a phishing attempt. So it always kind of goes back to that, that, you know, infiltration impact vector there so any any comments right. on this one yeah i think that your comment about like it's it's really about knowledge defending against these types of things because the business email compromises it's already much tougher than your standard phishing because they're using legitimate email that they've gotten from somebody else right that they've already got access to and using it yeah. so training and, and like you said there, there's the knowledge that people need to think about are you know there's there's things that target you know you need to change the current process possibly right so that there is better verifications for things when there's asks about money or asks about changing things but then the training needs to be like how to verify or mm -hmm. you know what's the process and forms for those verifications i remember um we dealt with an email or a bec uh, attack where there was supposed to be a payment for work that was going on and the attacker already owned the email for who the contract was with and said oh we need to change where the wire money needs to go to for this contract and they provided all the stuff that was required as far as make it look like a letterhead provide the right for pieces of information and our security analyst people who are looking into it they were able to say well gosh the routing number is a bank in like indiana but the address is provided for the bank is a house up for sale in georgia right like just doing two google searches they were able to say well this is really weird and yeah. that, that to me isn't a lot of verification to do. You know, it could be that right. simple. They just searched on two things in Google, but having those conversations with people that aren't, that's not part of their process. We're like, well, that's not our process. And it's like, maybe it should be, right? Like, we're not asking you to spend an extra, you know, whatever. And I know some processes are kind of like built-in systems. They try to automate how they manage these things. But, you know, it, you could save hundreds of thousands of dollars just by I, doing a few steps. That's where automation to me, I mean, being for, I, I've done automation for the past like five years, six years of my life. Yeah. It's still kind of a four letter word to me, right? Because I think people use that as a, just an overarching concept where, you know, yes, you can automate yourselves out of a couple of minutes of work and, you know, it can have a lot of really good impact in our space. But to this example, if you get an email saying we should change this bank transfer from this person that is verified, everything looks correct, a quick, double verification out of band, if it's a, a phone call or a 
um, some other system, internal system that you can check and there's like a code word to verify that changes. Like there's some things you can put in place to solve that problem pretty easily. I know it might take a couple of minutes out of the day, but you shouldn't have thousands of bank transfers that are being changed every day, right? So like- Yeah, if something is worth the cost of an FTE, maybe you should spend time on it, right? Because I mean, at that point you're losing the money, you can just hire someone and that's all they can do. If that's really what you want to protect. I mean, like at that point, like, I mean, yeah. the same value and get more value, right? But yeah, yeah. so. Yeah. And we, we automate a lot in our internal processes, but there's always that human touch to the process, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's super important for any type of internal process that you're doing. There should be some sort of human verification on because, um, yeah, things can get messed up pretty quickly. <laughs> right, right. Um, awesome. So, yeah, we can move on to the next one. Yeah, so the next one is from the CISA.gov, um, and it's, uh, I think, where they got hit, right? The Iranian government-sponsored APT actors compromised federal network, deploy crypto miner, and credential harvester. Um, so, you know, the title pretty much says what the article is about, right? But I kind of want to walk through what they did, you know, from a high level and kind of just talk through some pieces. And there's something that I always find interesting when you read articles and I've seen it in other places but in CISA you see it as well they do a pretty good summary of here's all the actions and then they do another like summary about what mitigations could help against the attack and I think both are really important to read because sometimes the mitigations you read and you're like yeah that makes sense no brainer no brainer but sometimes they mention things in mitigations that aren't mentioned in what they did and it gives you more insight to maybe some details they've left out as far as what the attacker's behaviors were. And I'll, you'll see that when I kind of cover this. So obviously they use log for shell. Everyone's really aware of that one on a, on an unpatched VMware horizon, um, which, uh, you know, that sucks. That's something that, you know, if it, if it happened when it came out, you know, that's just unfortunate. But if it happened well after that, we all kind of have the, let's, we should have had is some there controls a note on, is, Was that a managed service or is that somebody like, I guess it's not on there. One of the things that I've seen- I don't seen know who owned it. Okay. One of the things yeah. that I've seen in the past is like, if it is a managed service through VMware and you're using the Horizon servers, those should have been patched by now. There should have been like a hard stop and a life should have been patched. If it's internal, again, you get into that conversation about when actually to do the policy pushes. So anyway, keep going. Yeah. And so then the other thing they, they did um, right off the rip uh, was they neutered the Windows Defender, right? They uh, basically used the PowerShell like MP preferences exclusion pass. And I think they excluded the entire C drive. So basically said, hey, we want to make Defender just whitelist everything, um, which, you know, we've seen it, we've seen that technique before. Um, and we do have stuff around that. Um, it's not in our community edition of 100, but we do cover down on those things. And then they, they use some outside a, tools. Go ahead. I got a question about that. Sorry. Commentary as you move along. This is really good. Um, yeah. So did they, I guess they got access to the Horizon box via log for shell, pivoted out. Did they mm -hmm. under, and then was there a method to determine that box had, you know, Defender? Are they just going through looking at, you know, the, the protection policies on the box? Is that something that they just kind of- Yeah, so they, the they didn't comment their type of discovery, but with looking at similar things, they use a lot of PowerShell for discovery. So I'm assuming that was kind of part of their, you know, discovery tactics. The only discovery they really touched on was like once they got into the domain, how they discovered assets to laterally move to. That was like their topic of conversation there. Okay, cool. Yeah, but the the other three tools, which I know two people are going to be two people. Two of the tools 
um, are going to be kind of familiar amongst you know a lot of the security guys uh, with the PS exec. They dropped that right for the execution stuff they want to do, and they did Mimi Cats. Go figure. That's how they're dumping some passwords and stuff. And then Ngrok. And I, I know we've talked about Ngrok before, and we've got some content coming out about it too. But it's a way to basically have some machine call out to legitimate. Yeah, kind of a proxy way to just get access. It was like their alternate way of persistence. And it's, you know, it's a kind of legitimate service you can kind of install on both Linux and Windows, I believe. So mm-hmm. um, they had that leverage, but they were able to get the DA creds and then they actually created a rogue DA account. So when you think about just basic detections, that's something that kind of like you should know when DA accounts are being created, right? So, you know, hopefully that was identified, but if that went under the radar, that's something they, they should definitely go around and fix. And then they changed some local admin account passwords just, and that was like, they attributed that to backing up in case they lost DA access. So that was what was they called. They covered down on like things that happened, but in the mitigation section, um, they talked about monitoring TGS or, you know, Kerberos ticket granting, you know, services, which then they later made a call to Kerberosting and they didn't mention Kerberosting happen in what they did, but obviously they were doing some Kerberosting. And then they talked about making sure accounts that aren't being used need to be disabled, right? So in my head already, if they're using Kerberosting and they're saying that there was some uh, non-active you know, accounts that were active, I'm thinking like an old service account that isn't being managed, password easy to break with Kerberosting, and that's another method where you can gain some access. So those are some things to consider there. Um, they also made a comment about some mitigations around, around um, clear text passwords and LSAS. So Windows, I thought the newer ones, at least by Windows 8, by default, that's supposed to be encrypted in LSAS. Like that's a setting. So if they're coming across boxes where that wasn't, um, another thing when it comes to your managing your configurations, you know, that's kind of an important thing. And then there was another thing where they made a comment about separating user and admin accounts, right? So basically saying admin shouldn't be able to get their email or web browse, right? Like the two biggest attack services from a user standpoint, it sounds like those accounts may not have been separated. So there seemed like there were some in my opinion, some hygiene type things that could have been either better tracked and better managed um, that would help with some of these things. Now, I thought it was really interesting that you have an APT sponsored and they're doing crypto miners. I I just, and just credential harvesting, it just seems kind of um, like your lower hanging type of like, what's your motivation at that point? I get the credentials, the crypto miners, like why would you put something out there that would get you detected faster, in my opinion? Um, if you really wanted to sit and gather information. So that was part was a little weird to me. But I mean, overall, an interesting attack that, you know, hit government. The government's always pushing out requirements for people and their contracts of how they should manage their networks. But it sounds like there were some cleanup and things that probably needed to happen on their end as well. So, you know, it's I think government should be the shining example of how things should be configured. But I also know some things are hard to move in some government spaces, right? Very fast. But yeah. that being said, you, some interesting techniques that are still being commonly used and still easily detectable when you're hunting for them. Yeah, I, I feel bad for that security engineer or uh, admin for that environment. I mean, they called out a lot here. Yeah. I mean, the the initial kind of big thing is they didn't patch Horizon, and you know that that was that was how they got in, and then they were able to use a lot of other misconfigurations like you called out to. To maneuver, gain access, gain persistence. I mean, it's there's a laundry list of like opportunity here for the yeah. the attacker. Right? And and a good point here. Let's say the scenario is there weren't patches available at the time this actually took place. 
Yep, yep, um, yep. We've got hunt packages, even on the community edition of Hunter, where you can look for what's some of that after persistence mechanisms, if that was utilized. And mm -hmm. that's where hunting comes into play as well, right? When, hey, something we were tracking, once we get it all fixed, how do we know that this hasn't been leveraged against us? Well, you can hunt for that, right? Hunt for behaviors that could follow right after that. And if those seem clear after you fix your environment, you're, you have higher confidence you're in a good place. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. Uh, one more thing for this article for me is the, the miter tactics and techniques section. I, I loved that they explicitly call out the techniques yep. tied to the actor's behaviors. And I think a lot of times when you start talking about techniques and tactics, you'll kind of blanket say, okay, this was technique, command and scripting interpreter PowerShell that this actor uses. But there are you know, hundreds of ways to use that particular technique, you need to be able to identify it to the actual threat or actor or exploit. And so they did a really good job of tying the technique to the use, to the actual use of what's actually going on. Because a lot of times you have that disconnection to say, oh yeah, I'm covered from this technique because I've ran one hunt against this very specific technique. There's plenty of ways to get around and, and do that same technique in an environment. So you you really need to tie it to the tech, the excuse me, the threat, the malware, the actor, the exploit for you to be to be able to pinpoint. Because you might run it once, but you also need to run these other 15 against that same technique mm -hmm. to cover yourself down. So I I this article is great to kind of actually see them break everything down on that perspective. Yeah, that part was really good. Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, moving on, this one should be a quick one. And I, I kind of wanted to call this out for a very specific reason, but um, this is a, an article from Vulcan Post. Uh, FTX hacker dumps prices of ETH using stolen coins. Um, if you haven't heard, FTX is going through uh, a rough patch <laughs> to say the least, right? So like they owe $3.1 billion to the top 50 investors. There's celebrities, there's organizations like Major League Baseball that are tied up in this that I'm very curious to understand how they're going to play out because every umpire had an FTX badge, right? So they were heavily invested in this, um, mm -hmm. but it's going to hit. It's going to hit hard. This article is talking about how there's there's a hacker that has is the 35th top owner of Ethereum, um, and it goes into how you know they can potentially move that from their, their holdings to other holdings and wallets and cold storage to keep access to that. But with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in the ledger situation, you should be able to track all those transactions, but it's hard to do attribution on the back end. So I wanted to bring up this article just from a an organizational perspective, right? So you have a lot of these um, Coinbase and Binance, right? You have a lot of these exchanges that deal with all these transactions on a day-to-day, -day. they're not really decentralized, right? Because people are holding their money in this one place. And if that one place goes down, you know, you're exposed to hacking. So it's going to really be interesting in the next couple of years on how cybersecurity can help monitor, maintain, track, and prevent these type of events from happening. Because um, one thing we really don't talk about is logging from a ledger perspective or um, no telling what kind of cybersecurity stance a company like Binance has, especially as they have global entities, there's not the same policies and procedures put in place there. People are holding their money offshore. So there's this, there's a cybersecurity implication to this and future use of cryptocurrency. So um, just your thoughts, we can kind of just have a quick discussion on it. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I'm one of those guys that have always been interested in cryptocurrency, but I don't really dive into or, or utilize it at all. But, you know, when I think about things like cryptocurrency, like why everyone was super excited about it, it just being able to exchange money that way was there was not much oversight. There wasn't like, you know, all these types of things. But, you know, you, you think the market cryptocurrency, why it was so healthy and good it was it was all based off good faith and good math. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, regulations and rules usually come into play when the good faith thing gets abused. Yep. Um, and so then it's kind of like, well, you know, they only can ride that for so long before they start running into problems like this. Um, so that's kind of how I see it. But, you know, the other thing, too, is what's interesting to me is if the cryptocurrency realm starts to fall or have major issues, you know, how is that going to impact um, like ransomware operations, for instance, you know, where they rely on that to be, you know, um, stable and utilized and, and you know, um, and if it, if for some reason the fixes become it somehow gets more regulated or things around that, um, that will make them harder to move money and make money that way. That's um, a great point. So you know, so like that, that, that there's kind of that where my mind goes, and it's more of like I'm just curious how that could change or if it will have any effects, um, especially if these things occur more often. Um, right. But yeah, I don't know. Like cryptocurrency, like I said, is an exciting topic. It's a cool concept, but the problem is, is not everyone plays by the rules, right? Yeah, no, I love that point. Before you move on, I just want to highlight that point around ransomware, right? So, like, you have somebody say, I need one ETH or, you know, 50 ETH to recover your data, and they get that transferred mm -hmm. over, and then Ethereum's price value drops 60% next week, right? <laughs> like, are they really going to keep using that standard? That's a great point. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, we can move on to the last article. Yeah, so this next one is from the Hacker News, and it's uh, Microsoft warns of hackers using Google ads to distribute royal ransomware. Now, I want to say it was your last week and week prior, but we talked about search engine optimization, where there was uh, people who were dropping things into, I think, WordPress sites to boost the stats yep. on the redirection to their page. Well, this is kind of a similar way to use this maliciously, right? Where they're basically be able to get their ads in place and also be high on the search engine returns for ads for like free things people are looking for. In this case, it was like, you know, Adobe Flash Player, which I don't know why people are still looking for that, or any desk, log me and Microsoft Teams, Zoom, the things people are commonly using that are free. But if you're able to get your ad up the top, right, before you get the legitimate stuff, people will click usually the first thing they see without looking at it. Um, that's how they fall into this. And so apparently this kind of activity has kind of been happening uh, when I was going and pivoting through different articles that, that touch on the same topic all the way back to like February, really, of this year. So it seems like it's been like a long time running. And the one thing that's been consistent from back in February to even this attack more recently is the use of the bat loader. Mm -hmm. So Batloader is a tool where that's what when people click on these links, they pulled that down. So one of the interesting things about Batloader is its use of the mshta.exe. So attackers have used this lulbin a lot to basically avoid application whitelisting, avoid detection based on signature-based detections. And, and what, it, what it is used to run is HTML apps, so .hta files, but that also means it can um, execute VB scripts and JavaScript as well. Like things you would see on a web page, it can kind of execute in a Windows environment. That's kind of why it's there. But how they were using it, which is really interesting, is apparently MSH TA, when it executes things, it doesn't care what the extension is. It just crawls the, the package and looks for HTA, VBScript, or any of those things that can run inside of it. 
And so what I mean by that is, so they were you know, targeting the AppResolver.dll. It's a signed Microsoft DLL, but they had a way to embed VBScript in there. So the HTAEXE was ignoring all the PE header-based executable stuff and just jumped right to where it could execute something and it executed their VB script, which was the malicious downloader to pull down additional stage stuff. And then there, there's some, there's a technique, I think it's a technique, but the, the term that Mandate was using was the polyglot. But they said it, you can use a similar thing where you can append an HTA code at the end of an executable, the way you just append it in uh, to the data, and you can you can run the MSHTA um, on that too, and it will detonate that. So, and what's what's interesting about this is all these things are digitally signed and valid. And what this is taking advantage of is digital signatures don't always evaluate every part of a file. They evaluate certain sections, and that's what's signed. And what they're taking advantage of is they're finding where you can use DLLs and other things and put code in different places that aren't part of what's going to be signed by the signature. But this executable, when it's running, will find that part of the code and recognize it and detonate it anyways. So right, it's a really right. savvy way for them to get around some of that. And so when you think about hunting for something like this, an example of what I would potentially look for is look for MSHTA EXE executing any extension or no extension, but just not extensions of HTA VBS or uh, JavaScript or text, TXT, because actually that's the only extension it won't uh, execute is if it's a plain text file, TXT, the MSHTA doesn't actually do anything. But if you see it on a command line running something other than those extensions that are the common ones for it, very suspicious, right? Something okay. worth looking at. Um, yeah, and, yeah, I like the breakdown there because again, from there, the kind of trade craft, they're gonna try to figure out how to get through the most explicit detections, right? So that's that's the work that they spend their time doing, I think is just, I don't I don't care if, it'd be interesting to understand, like I don't think they care if you can hunt for it, because again, that skill set isn't readily out there. They care if you can detect something. So if I can get past right. the detection, I'm good. Typically right. is what they're thinking, right? So you breaking down, using living off the line, or, uh, living off the land binaries, being able to circumvent those detections gets the attackers to their goal, but as hunters, we need to understand that, you know, there are methods to bypass detections, right? So we mm -hmm. have to understand how to hunt for the data. Um, and the way you explained it and kind of broke that down is I think the way that we need to start pushing these analysts and hunters to think. So that's, that's a great breakdown. Yeah, and the only other two tools that they called out in this attack that I thought were worth noting, and, and I think we we have some things that's just not on the community side, but it's the near command. So near SOP mm -hmm. does like a really cool suite of tools that let, lets you do like forensic based things or execute specific things certain ways. And it and the near soft or near command lets you do basically kind of like what PS exec does. It lets you execute things at system level privileges, right? So it's kind of like an admin tool, but gives you even more access than admin. And then they use in sudo, which is kind of like another way to like do trusted installer type actions, um, mm -hmm. type executions. So, you know, other tools to kind of look for because it looked like they were dropped, not renamed. But if you look into the tools, there's certain command line arguments that are worth noting that you could look for as well. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the finalized comments on on this one specifically as far as the technical side I was able to pull out. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's an awesome breakdown. It's always cool to hear it from the hunter's perspective because it can be scary looking at it if you're like, oh no, they can get through our detection or they have all these sophisticated ways to maneuver and use, you know, the the tools on the 
systems. But if you if you have the ability to kind of break that down and understand that we can still hunt for the behaviors and everything mm -hmm. else they're doing in the box, like that should kind of alleviate some of that stress, right? All right. So, awesome. Well, I think that's it for the week. Uh, we got the Thanksgiving week coming up, but I think we'll be back the week after um, yep. next week. And then, um, yeah, it's been great. Another great week. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up with everyone next week. And with that, that closes out the week of November 21st, 2022. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.